All right, it's the Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm Adam Rappaport. On this week's episode, I sit down with Chef J.J. Johnson, who I just realized is the second J.J. we've had on the Foodcast. Uh, first up was the NBA's J.J. Redick, episode 114 last May. You should check that one out. But uh, as for this J.J., uh, J.J. Johnson was the award-winning chef uh, up at the Cecil and Minton's in Harlem, and he won, I want to say the Cecil won Esquire Magazine's Restaurant of the Year back in 2014. Uh, he made a name for himself there. He recently left the restaurant uh, to do his own thing. He did a long stint at uh, the Chef's Club. It's sort of a permanent pop-up restaurant fixture in downtown Manhattan, and came out with a cookbook, Between Harlem and Heaven, Afro-Asian-American Cooking for Big Nights, Weekends, and Every Day. So I talked to JJ about being a young chef on the rise and what the future holds for him. All right, let's do this. Here's me and JJ. All right, JJ, we are rolling. Welcome to the pod. Oh, thank you for having me. Super excited to be here. Uh, you're a busy man. You, you just finished your, your tenure at Chef's Club. Yes. You got a new cookbook out, Between Harlem and Heaven. Correct. And you're working to open your first restaurant. Oh, my first restaurant. And I have twins. Oh, and you got twins. Mazel tov, as we say. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, <laughs> Boy and girl, yeah. The, the hustle is real. <laughs> the hustle is really real. Who do you think you get that from, your mom or your dad? Wow. I think I get that from my dad. My dad said once, I, was, I remember, I'll never forget this, I was 13, 14 or 13 years old, we are going to basketball practice in the Poconos, and he said, then pulls to the side of the road. I'm like, Dad, is everything all right? Yeah. <laughs> like, what's going on here? Like, you about to tell me something I don't know? And he's like, I just want to make sure you realize, like, go through life not wishing you shoulda, coulda, woulda. Like, I want to make sure you realize, like, you go through life, and when you look back, you never say, ah, I wish I would have done it mm. that way, or ah, I should have done it that way. At least you can look back and say, I did it. It didn't work, but you did everything yeah. the way you wanted to do it. And, and I think he was saying that now, knowing and having conversation with my dad, my dad could have been a professional umpire. And he would have to get up and leave to move to Florida. And my mom just got her first real teaching job. And my dad was basically like, okay, I'm just going to stay as a bookkeeper at this oil company. And it all will just work itself out. I, maybe I'll get something here in the Northeast. And it, he always goes back to that story now, like on the reference point, like I'm really happy for you. You're really pushing. You're, you're really trying to figure it out. And I see you're not going through life like you yeah any of those moments i would say i really get that hustle and grind from my dad he was in he was putting that in my blood it's awesome because even it's that there's that notion of even if you don't necessarily succeed at everything you at least you know you gave it your shot and you're in the mix you know yeah i mean i hear so many friends say to me like hey man you're living the life and i'm like hey man it's a lot of work yeah. <laughs> like the instagram post might look really great but there was a lot of legwork Sweat, tears, getting people upset along the way. I always say, don't believe 75% of what you see on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> you know? True. But no, that's true. I mean, it's, it's interesting when you when you hear people who have these awesome jobs. And like, yes, that job might be awesome, but it's still a job. People pay you for a reason. You're successful for a reason because the people who work hard and work their asses off in any industry, it might look fancy. But what, what we see from the outside are usually the highlights. Yeah, I we mean, don't see all the grinding and the low lights to get there. Yeah, no, nobody sees that. And I, and I think for my mom, I have to give her credit. She was very like persistent on security. Like you, ha you have to make sure you have money in your savings mm. account. You have to make sure you think about retirement. <laughs> you have to make sure you do these things. And now, as I'm, I consider myself a real adult because I have twins. I'm thinking about these things every day. Like, okay, how how do I put my children through school? 
Dude, how... I just, my wife and I just got uh, life insurance. <laughs> yeah, both, and I, I'm like, well, we're like 48 years old. I'm like, should we have life insurance? I think we're supposed to. Do we, like, what do we, is he have all these meetings and they come, they send that doctor and everything. Exactly. And then you're like, wait, how much is this a month? And I'm like, uh, you're like, then they talk, you're like, okay, I guess this is what quote unquote adults do. This so, is what they do, right? Yeah. Like, so my I, mom's always drilling those things into my head. All right. So you grew up in the Poconos. Now, That's us, a typical us folks here in New York City, we hear the Poconos. I mean, like, are you living in a cabin? Are you up in the mountains? Like, what does that mean? Like, what sort of town did you grow up in? I grew up in this small town called Tobyhanna, Pennsylvania. We had dirt roads until I was about 13 years really? old. Yeah, there was five houses on the street. My dad's from the Bronx and my mom's from Long Island. So how'd they end up there? My mom's dad retired from being a postal worker, and he said he was refused to pay the taxes in Long Island. That was like 1980-something. <laughs> yeah. Ain't cheap. And he found the Poconos, and he said, I-, I can live here, and it's a quick commute. And my mom my dad went behind them, and we lived literally a block away from each other. My mom, my aunt lives around the corner. My grandfather lives around the corner. And that's how I grew up. So that's why there was so much cooking in the household. We weren't going out to dinner like that. Everybody was really cooking. Yeah. And my grandmother was cooking. But yeah, that's how we got there. My dad commuted to New York. I don't know how he did it. Two hours a day, five days a week. Seriously. Commend him, yeah, for uh, 20, 28 years. Wow. Yeah. That's crazy. Did you, uh, did your, any of your, parents or grandparents have to keep a garden or anything or was it more sort of store-bought sort of stuff uh, my my grandmother didn't keep a garden she did have maybe she did my grandfather was really big on he was from barbados so he was really big on uh, having a lot of plants in his house his mm-hmm. whole thing was like nourishing you know plants and i'm not talking like 10 plants i'm talking like yeah. 50 60 <laughs> 70 80 plants and maybe there was some cilantro and yeah. parsley within that mix my grandmother was really big on a spice cabinet Oh yes. I don't know where she was buying her spices from. I don't maybe when she was coming back into New York she had a spice spot. But she had like fifty, sixty, seventy spices like in small glass jars on a spinny rack that she would pull from. She made all her stocks from scratch. Um her cookbooks are still there in, in my grandfather's house, ninety four and they're there. Some are written in Spanish, some are in English. So was there a moment when you were in high school or something where you were like, I'm I'm moving to the big city? I'm, I'm getting out of the small town. I'm, I'm going for it. When, so when I was in culinary school, at Culinary School of America, I wanted to go work at the Ritz-Carlton Puerto Rico. I just felt like it was connected to me. And, I, and when you go to CI, you actually have to apply for the job if you get accepted. And I didn't get accepted because it was like a really like crazy interview. I had to have like three phone interviews. And I was like nervous I didn't get the job. And... I remember emailing Drew Nipriant, like, hey, man, I got like four weeks left. I hear Tribeca Grill's like really amazing. Somebody what, I know just came from there. What year is this? 2002. Okay. Right when I can't, Anthony, when, right when Stephen Lewandowski was taking over uh-huh. the restaurant. Wait, how bummed out were you when you didn't get the gig at Ritz Carlton? I was so bummed because I wanted to travel. I wanted yeah. to go somewhere. I wanted to be. Did you take it personally? Did you think like, oh, man, I did something wrong or. Yeah, you know, yeah, I yeah, I took it personal. What could I have done differently? Mm-hmm. Can I have, have could you not give me this generic letter? Yeah. And maybe gave me a couple of things. Hey, you didn't we were looking for these types of personalities yep. or you didn't have enough experience to help me along the way. But I emailed Drew Nepron because they were in between chefs and there was no chef email and he responded. He was like, Oh yeah, we need two externs. And I was like, I'll come tomorrow. <laughs> and I remember I told my parents I was gonna come 
work in New York City. My mom was like, well, where are you going to live? <laughs> You're a good and question, like, mom. I'm going to go live with Aunt Jeannie and Aunt Estella. And my dad, that's my dad's sister. They and where are Har- they? They live in Harlem. Uh-huh. Did and they know that? They didn't know that. <laughs> my dad kind of like gave that look like, okay, so we'll bring you to, we'll bring you down to Tribeca Grill. We'll drop you off. I was like, it's not going to be an hour interview. I'm yeah. probably going to be there for 10 hours. My dad was like, it's cool. I'm well, she calls back when you're done. And I was literally there for 10 hours and I waited to the place closed. I talked to Chef Lowendowski and I said, hey, I, I, I go on extern in three weeks. Will you give me the job? He's like, no, he's like, you're really not that good. <laughs> but I can pay you this amount of money. Will you take this position? And Wait, was, did he literally say you're not really not that good? He's like, you're really not that good, but I, I do need the spot and I'm yeah. happy you stayed all the way to the end to talk to me, the end yeah. of service. So I can, we can figure it out. But I wasn't good in culinary school. But what does that mean? You weren't good. Meaning what? Like my knife cuts weren't good. So why'd you stick with it? It brought me joy. So you, so you're like, I like this. I just need to get better at it. Yeah, it was something that I knew I could get better at. Like I knew how to always kind of build flavor. Mm-hmm. But I was learning. I was like a home cook, right? But yeah. going to culinary school, I was I was a dishwasher. So you didn't have like the discipline technique, but you but you knew right. you and knew you had taste. I knew I had taste. I knew I was a hard worker, mm. um, but I wasn't the best at that time. Do you, I, was, I always want, and I've talked to other chefs about this. In this, in this sort of day and age, and the, in the sort of modern American culinary landscape, and blah blah blah. Do you need to go to culinary school as, as a chef these days? Do you think the culinary world's shifting so much? Mean right? what? So you could. It, it's just not about being in a restaurant anymore, right? You could be a personal or real part you could be a personal chef and i see it all the time all these personal chefs right you could be a personality you could be a personality an influencer you be an influencer <laughs> right you can be you can do home package meals that go to somebody's yep. homes you can have a food truck you i can, mean it's interesting we, we did a podcast a few weeks ago with christina tosi over at milk bar in the momofuku world and she had a similar sort of experience as yours sort of as a young person just wanting to do whatever it takes to get a job and like I don't know if I, Christina's, she's had a lot of success, but I don't. I, she's not really a chef. She's kind of runs a business who mm-hmm. has found a way to open these other businesses. I mean, she's as much of an entrepreneur as she is a pastry chef in the classic sense. Yeah, in the classic sense. I mean, somebody was talking to me about that today. I was like, "How do you feel about her?" And I was like, "Listen, she changed the game." Yeah, like she took ordinary things that we all knew, and was able to serve it in a restaurant, and it was still craveable. Yeah, and again, I think that's really fascinating. Like, are there chefs out there who are more technically precise than Christina? Sure, but how many of them did their thing, came up with the fresh concept, said, I'm just going to make it happen, and, and did it their way? And, and that, that goes for a lot these days, and I think that people recognize that when, when someone is genuine and real. Yeah, I mean, Culinary of America did a lot for me. I, I still say I, I'm not sure I would be where I am today without, mm-hmm. that, without going there and having that on my resume. It costs a lot of money. But having that there as like a foundational point. But how many chefs are actually letting young kids in the kitchen? Right? Just to let them come in there and, and, and learn. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm I'm just the guy who works in an office. No, here. no. <laughs> no it's but true I'm saying, though. like I let young you, young yeah. kids in the kitchen, right? And you can come learn and I'll tell you what I think you can do. I probably give you a little bit more um leeway than the average person would but like would danielle let you come in the kitchen at 17 and be a prep cook you'd be a dishwasher yeah and you would probably have to do that for two or three years so then are you then are you behind the the person that is 
Are you behind the young kid that's in culinary school now coming out at 19 or coming out at 21 when you were like a dishwasher for a year at a job? Yeah, I think the the, the challenge with starting off in a lower position, and you see this in in media industry as well, is that you are then often perceived as that from then on down. On down the road, you're like, oh yeah, he's a dishwasher. He's not right. a cook. And the best and, of- but it's like you have to, it's all, you have to th- leave that restaurant to go someplace else before you can come back and get the respect you deserve. The best advice I got at culinary school, I went back for my bachelor's, and the chef said to me, "When you graduate from here, I don't want you to take a line cook position." And I was like, "That's what I'm supposed to cook, take." Yeah. Like, no, you're going to take a junior sous chef position. You're going to find a junior sous chef position, a tournant or a junior sous chef. You're still going to work the line, but. You're going to start doing ordering and you're going to start managing people and that's going to help you along the way. And that's what I took. I got that job position at Jane under Brian Brian Ellis at that time as a junior Sue that was a job posting on Craigslist. They were about to open up the Smith. So I was there like in this transitional period at Jane helping them figure out the mm-hmm. Smith testing stuff. So I learned a lot underneath that group. Um, and that was like the best advice I can get. But for young kids, I think if you go to culinary school, you still need to get the experience. So even though you have an internship or an externship, you should be trying to work on the weekend somewhere to get more experience. I mean, that's what I was doing. All right. So fast forward a bunch. You worked at the Cecil and Mittens up in Harlem. Mm-hmm. You got this cookbook. You're now looking to open a new restaurant. We can talk about all that. We'll get to that. Are you opening in Harlem? Do you come downtown? You know, What's that thought process as, as now a potential business owner? So, you know, I, I did Chef's Club. I, I did a Grammy week at Spring Place. And those studios. are both, and for those aren't, who aren't New Yorkers, they're both in downtown New York, right. you know, where, where we Soho, all wanna, right, et cetera. Where we all want to cook. Yeah. And what's what, what's the rent at a place like Chef's Club, do you think? Ooh, has to be over $75,000 a month. A month. I mean, that's insane, right? It's insane. You're talking it's like a million almost dollars a year, almost. Yeah. Just in rent. Just in rent. So you would have to do somewhere near like $12 million in sales Which is from bananas. a business perspective, yeah. right? That average restaurant is doing like 1. 1.5, 1. 1.8, so 1.9. So, all right. So then you're like, all right, so what do you what do? You do? I, I mean, for me, as, as I'm looking at the landscape in New York, I would love to cook downtown. And I think a lot of, a lot of us, of lot, when I say us, I mean chefs, we go against the grain sometimes and, or we go against organically what's in our face. And I I have a great opportunity to open up a space in Harlem. There's a landlord there that really loves me. It's on on a great corner in front of a train that anybody can get to from all around New York City. And the key for me is the rent. The rent's one-eighth of what the rent costs downtown. Now, the density isn't high as downtown. Density mean people. Foot traffic and everything. But there's still a good amount of density when you look at the density versus the rent and the square footage and everything else, the taxes, yeah. how much your trash is going to be when they pick it up. Like all these things as a business owner, or as an entrepreneur that you're looking at, because now it's more than just the food. It's but that more stuff than... has nothing to do with being a chef. That's what's so crazy. No, like you went to culinary school to learn knife skills, and now all of a sudden you're worried about trash pickup and real estate taxes and all that sort of stuff. It's yeah, crazy. And I, and I think you evolve from that. I think that's being at the Cecil... When I was there for the last five years, really helped me. I turned, I went from like a chef, from like a chef to cuisine to an executive chef, and to the last like year and a half to an operator, like really managing the P and L, learn being in those meetings, yeah. talking about budgets. Well, I always joke like the higher you get on your food chain, the less you get to do what you actually love to do. Right, you're in a bunch of meetings and dealing with budgets. It's ridiculous. <laughs> you're like, wait, I like to cook. What's the last time so I? So it's like when I make my schedule, it's like, okay, guys, these are my two days on the line. Yeah. 
the rest you want to do, we could do meetings and stuff. Well, but you, I need you to made be a there. point of like, yeah, like I'm still I need to do still, my time. I need to be here, right? So I was talking to my assistant, Ryan, who you just met, and she, she worked as a host at um, Red Rooster, also up in Harlem, Marcus Samuelson's joint. And she was mentioning a line that you have in your new cookbook with Alexander Smalls about, quote, unquote, door-to-door service. And that up in Harlem, you want to get people to come up, but you had these people who would take an Uber up, get out of the car, walk into the restaurant, eat their meal, walk right back into the Uber and go back wherever they came from, downtown or Brooklyn or something. And it's like, well, are they really experienced in the neighborhood or how are they helping the neighborhood or are they just coming to this restaurant? And I don't know the answer, but how did you approach that in terms of like, all right, we want to sort of enrich the neighborhood and not just be a place where people come and go, but we also want those people who don't live in Harlem to come up here and, and, and sample what we got. What I what we did there was we always hired from the community. Yep. So 85% of the staff was from the community. So at least when you walked in the restaurant, you were like, oh, this is made up of all different type of people. You don't really see that in downtown restaurants. Yep. So that was a way of putting it in people's face. Uh, it could have been with on the outside of the restaurant at the Cecil at that time, we had a famous like mural from uh, from a magazine that was from Esquire magazine that was shot from 1937. So these people were taking pictures in front of that. So there was these touches of history or touches of Harlem that people can see. But then you would hear people say, oh my God, it's so beautiful up here. Maybe I do need to come up here during the day. And I'm not, I'm not sure you can really change that. Well, let's say, let's say you open a joint up in Harlem, like what would you do similar to the season? What would you do differently? What sort of restaurant would you want to open there? So I'm focused on a rice concept right now. So instead of a noodle bar, uh, a rice rice shop, yep. a rice bar, all about origins of rices from around the world. Um, and I feel like those will pull people in from a cultural standpoint. And there's a place that will be re- that everybody um, can go to. Uh, from what I would do differently, I would actually activate the old community a little bit more than what we did. And uh, at the Cecil, so my prices would be lower. Mm-hmm. I would really cater to the old Harlem that when a lot of people are opening restaurants up there, they're forgetting about. And that's your density. That's the people you need to survive. The door-to-door customer mm-hmm. will come always, and they're great because you need them. Um, but the people that you really want to turn your place into a neighborhood restaurant are the people that live there every day. So interesting. I did a piece. God, I just remember that years ago um, when I was at Time Out in New York. This must have been like 19... 19- 98, I guess. And it was when Keith McNally was opening up Pastis in the Meatpacking District. And at that time, the Meatpacking District was the the diner Florent, and there was literally no other restaurants there. Um, People always mention that, like, I'm the new Florent. Like, that's the feeling they get. It's a, it's a good good I feeling to have. It. I mean, that was like the joint. You know, that was like owned by whatever that French dude's name was, and it was open 24 hours, and, you know, you'd see like Madonna there at 4 a.m. and back in 1986 or something. Um, and then when McNally opened it, I, I did a piece. I spent a day with him, and he was talking to his staff at Balthazar at the time as they were his like team as they were getting ready to open. And he was explaining like what the philosophy of this restaurant was going to be and what the point of it was. And one thing I thought was interesting, he said, you know, that whole first section of pasties he wanted to be for walk-ins only, for neighborhood people. If you know someone his father's age could wanted to come in and just get bacon and eggs in the morning, read the paper, they could do that. Because he said if you if you have a restaurant where it's just the fancy people, then it's a boring restaurant. And if it's just a neighborhood people, then it's just a neighborhood restaurant. And like ultimately what you want is that mix, that that it has some neighborhood, some destination, young and old, rich and poor, that sort of thing, that that's what sort of makes a restaurant vibrant and, and feel like it's got a pulse. Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I, I think 
that that's what I'm developing when I'm developing this uh, restaurant is like giving it a pulse. What's the pulse? It's the music. Uh, that's 90s hip hop and R&B. It's the feel of this Caribbean hut that has like smells like coconuts and green trees. And then there's this old school coffee window where people can order coffee from the in in the window like you would do in, in the 80s. There's neon yep. lights. There's so you, so you, you, you don't have counter. a space yet, but you've got this all in your head. It's there. You know, just got to raise the rest of the money. <laughs> so speaking of raising money, so when you were at the Cecil, all right, so the Cecil was owned by Alexander Smalls, who and was- Richard Parsons. And Richard Parsons. So Alexander, was, he was a chef, but also a Grammy nominated, award-winning, yeah. nominated opera singer, stage performer. Richard Parsons, former CEO of Time Warner and Citigroup as chairman. Um, it would strike me that those would be two sort of- I don't know, intimidating sort of bosses to have or two guys <laughs> with a lot of sort of personality and ego? Like, how did you get squeezed in yeah, between the two they, of them? They, they have a lot of personality and they have a lot of ego. So pro, and pros, different... pros and cons of that experience as the young guy. Um, I think it was great. Alexander Smalls believed in me. Nobody mm-hmm. else really believed in me. Shot me an email and next thing I know, we turned into a mentor at a young age and then I, he's my boss. And we developed this concept of Afro Asian American cooking. And he was like, "Listen, I'm I'm at an age now where I don't need to be behind the line, but if I can get a young guy to work with and collaborate with, who can be the chef right. behind the line, we can make something happen." No, exactly, yeah. And yeah. he was like, and along the way, he kind of realized, like, "Oh wow, you're starting to own this a little bit more than me." Mm-hmm. This is, and he and started to just like kind of like, "Okay, I know you got this. You you understand this now." I kind of put this in your blood and you've kind of taken this to a totally different level than I kind of even Well, let me see about that because I've met you a few times at like a benefit or something and it was obvious you're like, oh, I'm going to get out there. I'm going to get in the mix. I've got to be my almost like my own PR person to get people to notice what we're doing uptown. Yeah. Where did that come from? Where were you like, I, I'm going to hustle and I'm going to I'm going to get people to, to pay attention. I think the hustle is just there. I think it's just natural. But it's also just like I'm cooking at that time, like I'm cooking really good food mm-hmm. and I want people to come up like I want to be on the top 10 list that yeah, you yeah. guys put out. I want you to I want you to come taste what I'm doing. I want you to understand it. I want to be nominated as a James Beard chef, best chef in New York. You know, I want all these things because I'm working really hard yeah. for it. And then I'm also getting invited to these events. So if I'm around everybody, why? And I'm just a I'm just a person that I love to talk to everybody, say hello. So I'm going to say hello to everybody. I'm going to introduce myself, even if I don't know you don't know me. I know who you are. I'm going to say hello. I, and I'm, if I truly love your work, I'm going to let you know that. And hopefully, we keep in contact along along the way. And maybe one day we'll be sitting here like and like here we today. Are podcasting. How much? You, so you Alexander noticed you when you were on a Rocco Despirito show mm-hmm. competition show in 2011 or so. 2009. Nine. Sorry. No, it's okay. Um, <laughs> but it's interesting. You're you as a chef. Speaking of guys like Danielle and, and McNally, you're of a different generation where so many young chefs now doing TV or starting out of TV is it's just part of the game almost. You know, and w- what are your thoughts on that in terms of being a quote unquote personality versus being a chef? I mean, I, I, I went on Rocco's dinner party because I was applying for jobs and nobody was giving me a shot to. Like, how old were you at this point? I was 20, 25. Okay. And I was trying to be a CDC. And nobody was that trying means to chef to cuisine. Chef to cuisine. For the- <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, sorry, sorry. Chef to cuisine, and nobody was um, giving me a shot. And I was already an executive sous chef. Yep. Um, and I wasn't getting an opportunity, so I had to create. Why my- not? I'm not sure. Oh come on! 
What is it just? Any I mean, reasons? I look back now and I have to say maybe it was race, but mm-hmm. I'm not. I don't really see color, so it's hard for yeah. me to say that. Do you think that you were ready skill wise? Yeah, I mean, I worked at a lot of good places at mm-hmm. that time, and my and my friends were were chef de cuisines. Yeah. So at that time, I was much better. I was better than I was in the kitchen. I helped open up the Smith. I was at Jane. We were doing crazy numbers for brunch. We were yeah. put, doing three hundred covers for dinner i work with leah cohen at central vinoteca i did corporate america and morgan stanley so i was pretty well rounded at that time but you, but, you but you weren't getting that break so you I were wasn't like, getting that break so I I like, what something. can i do yeah. i was trying to get on chop because that was the other show at that time i was really top chef really just started i don't know top chef was around and then somebody emailed me was like i think you'd be a really great fit for Rocco's Spirito's dinner party, you should try it. It's a one episode. You don't have to be away for six weeks. I applied and I got in, and then that's how I saw Alexander, and my career kind of went on from that. But since I've done so well in the sector, like when I say well, I mean like awards and nominations and ran successful restaurants, one best new restaurant, um, uh, Esquire Magazine, and these things, I get calls to go like on a Top Chef. And I say to them, well, why would I go on Top Chef now? Well, that's a good question. That's what I'm asking you. If I feel like chefs feel like, and I don't mean this in a bad way or a good way. I just it feels like that that is quote unquote part of the job now, and it's something that's expected of you. Is it? I I, I think it just depends on where you are. But I I'm not going to compete on Top Chef, and I, I don't say nothing's beneath me. But I've yeah. already like I can win a hundred thousand dollars. But other than that, they'll tell me on the phone, "Well, you could win James Beard Award." Like, what do you mean? I've been nominated. Yeah. You know, like. And you guys take my life. Why would I let you take my life? <laughs> like I'm smarter. I'm also just. Sm- I'm not a young kid. Like I'm yeah. s- smarter than that. I'm 33. I kind of know no, you've done, my yeah. worth. I've I've done the work in the kitchen. So now, if I am doing television on a personality base, it's a show that I feel that represents me, um, or I'm hosting or yeah, judging. Exactly. You're not right? just a, a comp- competitor. What speak, speaking of smarts and and being career decisions what's what's richard parsons like richard parsons is a really smart guy very like cool and collect and Mm -hmm. what's the best piece of advice you got from him best piece of advice is he says like looking at restaurants or business he calls it the the sliding scale and the money slides okay you have to watch the money slide (laughs) and if somebody's not in your business watching the money go in and out the door then you're going to go out of business the bank doesn't close because they went into credit card business Uh the bank closed because they ran out of money and nobody was watching the money so when you open a business you need to have somebody that watches the money but you better trust that person but you have to trust that person and if you think about that when i look at restaurants that do really well there's two people there's the chef and then there's the other person right there's there's the will Gadera. And there's the Danielle. Talk about Eleven Madison Eleven Park. Eleven Madison Park, right? There's the. I got to be careful whose names I say. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you, you know what I mean. No, no, right? yeah, yeah, and that's and I think in a, a good business partnership is that the the two partners bring complementary talents and skills right. to the table, and each other respects what the other brings. I, I also, some of the chef I was talking to, and I forget who at this moment said that he made a point when, in terms of as he was getting more into business, that he would sign every check. That was going out the door to one of the purveyors or whomever. So he personally knew who was getting paid. Who's getting paid? How much are we spending? Do we need to be spending this much? You start asking questions when you see it, and it's something I, I'm terrible at at my job. I'm like, oh, you run events, you're cool, and I'm like, wait, we paid. How much did we pay that person? What? Yeah. Like wh- what? You know, it's a pain in the ass, but you you got to do it. No, yeah, and if you look at Danny, like Danny, he was in every restaurant. 
Which, Dan, which Danny, Dan, Danny Meyer. Okay, Danny Meyer. Danny okay, Meyer yeah. is in every restaurant. Right? Yeah. You go back, he was in every restaurant. Um, now he has been able to build an infrastructure where he has the right people in the right places. And there's a bunch of other chefs that I would name that are very were very successful, but I just won't name them now because of things that have happened in the industry. Yes. Um, but they're, the ones that are very successful, there's a two-person team. There's somebody that's hospitality and watching the cash flow, and there's a person that's the chef and creator. And that's why I went after my business partner, Will Sears, who I happened to go to school with, but we weren't really close that way. But he's very good with cash in, cash out, and he's a hospitality guy. He worked, he helped expand all the Fig and Olives. He was at um, who, he, who owns Fig and Olive? I you see them everywhere. Like I can't. I'm not sure. He always mentions their name, yeah. but I have no clue who they are. I always see those restaurants like in Midtown or somewhere like L.A. or whatever. Right. Like whoa, that but place looks nice. Looks really nice. Yeah. Right? But they figured out they have their system. Yeah. They expand. He helped Danny Meyer open up Green River in Chicago, and they got a Michelin star and. That was big numbers. Now he's helping John expand for the moment so we kind of really get going. Uh, that's very cool. No, I, I think it's hugely important. Uh, with with your book, Between Harlem and Heaven, uh, so I'm going to read it, Afro-Asian-American Cooking for Big Nights, Week Nights, and Every Day. It's interesting. So you and Alexander wrote the book with Veronica Chambers. What I think is interesting about this book is you got a lot of, obviously, great recipes, beautiful photos. There's also a lot of interstitial... Essays? Essays and like arguments for something. I don't mean arguments in an like arguing sense, but like, hey, I want, I want, you want to teach the reader something. You want to make a point. You have something to say, I felt like. Yeah, I mean, when you're an African American chef, people believe you cook soul food. Yeah. And um, what does that mean when you, when you hear that? What do you think? I cringe. And I get it. You know, through the Great Migration, African Americans only had things that they can hold on to. Somebody was saying that they were cooking soul food. So they were bringing that into Harlem. They were bringing that up north. And that's what African-Americans were able to hold on to. But my grandmother that was from North Carolina that moved here in the 40s never said she cooked soul food. She said she cooked Southern American food. Yeah. Um, or my grandfather from Mississippi on my dad's side was cooking Southern American food. So when we did Between Harlem and Heaven, we truly, truly wanted to let you know that there is food of the African diaspora. And it really stems from a place. It comes from West Africa through forced migration. It is in the Caribbean. It comes into the American South. It touches Brazil. It touches Peru. It touches all the, it touches all the continents. And it just happened to come through the forced migrations of African slaves. And there's this bigger conversation around food. And people are like, well, where does, it, where does this Asian come from? But it comes from the migrant workers of the Chinese and Vietnamese that were filling those gaps through the chosen migration at that time that you see in Jamaica when you go to the Jap- the Jamaican Chinese or when you're in Brazil and you see the Japanese and and the and the and the Africans that live together. It also goes back to the concept of rice-based restaurant right. with rice come you know coming from Asia into Africa et Right, cetera, exactly. Et so you see all these connected of dots but nobody's ever really talked about it in that. Mm-hmm. In in that area and I think now in society today just where we are like in a political climate more people are paying attention to migration more than ever so you kind of understand this book a little bit more it's interesting because I mean the with slavery and the forced migration such a painful sort of long moment in history but yet there's this sort of joyous result in the food well that's all we that's all they had right they were hiding spices and rices in their in their hair or blankets or in their pockets and the only thing you could really do was go back to the pots and the pans and cook and you were also cooking for everybody like people were cooking for for the the housekeepers 
the, the the masters of the house they were cooking for everybody but there's a true unique deeper deep story of where the food is coming from and and each dish has is telling is telling a story the head notes in the book are telling unique stories to each dish so it, it brings you to the place of knowing where i was and how i was thinking about this dish what do you think of when people use the term fusion cuisine i think it all depends on i mean i hate the word fusion yeah it's um, got a bad name but but why, why do you think that is i i think that at one people people weren't understanding where certain food was coming from, so all of a sudden it was fusion, or people were just pulling like French and Asian together. Yeah, and now like, it's, like, I remember back was it the nineties like wasabi mashed potatoes, right? <laughs> so you were like, what is this, right? And, and that's you're where like, why that, is this, right? Or why is this like this is that's how it started. So now when you have young cooks and chefs doing f- this food that they believe in, you're like, hmm, that's not mm. that's not what I know. Yeah, that's fusion, but. A lot of people are cooking just the food of who they are now and what they belong to, and then they're going a little deeper into history. What's interesting about fusion cuisine, and the book touches on this, about ingredients and and you know spice trades and whatnot, is that you know fusion cuisine has been part of the world for as long as we can remember. You know, if you, if you think of you know look at Italian food and like. You know, tomatoes and corn were from the New World. They mm-hmm. didn't have polenta until corn was brought over. They didn't have tomatoes until they were brought over. The Irish right. Irish didn't have potatoes until potatoes came from South America. There's all these things that you think of as being from that area that started somewhere else. And you and just talk about like roti and flatbreads, right? And like curry being in India, but also in Japan and and, and the Caribbean, exactly. You know, and it's interesting. but people get lost, right? Mm-hmm. They they put everything in this box. They and say, oh, that's where it's from. Like, curry's from India. It's like, as long as you understand what authentic is, dishes are allowed to evolve. You know, cuisines are allowed to evolve. Right. Given that you understand, well, what 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 the basic principle of this dish is. I mean, come on, let's think about it. If you go to Singapore, you, you're like, oh my God, I'm going to Singapore. It's going to be a Southeast Asian country. I know what I'm going to get. And you get there, you're like, what's going on? I don't, who are these people? <laughs> and it's the Chinese, the Malays, and the Indians. And that's what makes up Singapore. And it's not a typical Southeast Asian country, but it is Southeast Asian, but those people were forced there through the spice trade. And when you go there, it's its own unique cuisine of food and flavor. And I hear it all the time. Like I went there and I didn't like it. Well, why, why, hold on. It's amazing food. Why didn't you like it? Cause it wasn't what I expected it to be. What did you expect it to be? How essential is travel to being a chef? When I was young, I used to think I don't need to travel. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm like I live in New York. Yeah, <laughs> I can cooking it. I can get. I can cook the best Italian food, French food. I can go work all the, with all the greats. But until I went to Ghana in 2011, 2010, 2011 to cook for two months, that's when I opened my eyes of who I am as a chef, who I'm going to be as a chef, and what I'm going to cook, because I was having these moments of childhood memories of s- smells. But also started to realize, like, this is what I represent. And I've never had this opportunity to, to literally put my arms around something and say, this is mine now. And I'm going to own it. How many different cuisines do you think you will sort of capture at, at, at your new... Does the rice restaurant have a name yet? No, it doesn't okay. have a name yet. We're, we're, it does have a slogan, rice is culture. Okay. So how many, how many cultures do you feel comfortable with integrating... So we're, we're gonna do. So we're gonna have uh, Italian astrology rice, which is the mother grain of arborio. Mm-hmm. We're gonna have black tribute rice, which is the mother grain of of, of forbidden black rice. We're gonna do a Vietnamese um, 
Vietnamese sticky rice, but in jollof style. So West African with the Southeast Asian combined, which would probably be called like Bengali. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we're going to do an American rice for Carolina gold. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll touch in on those areas to begin with. And, and then can I, essentially, would I be able to order a rice bowl and choose some proteins or, or is it going to be already conceived so in the order? In the beginning, we're going to, yeah. I'm going to teach you who we are. Okay. And then we'll probably have a stir fry section where you can build some bowls, but I need to make sure that it doesn't matter what you do, <laughs> everything like, tastes really good together. Yeah, it's like going to art school. You go to art school to learn, and then once you've learned the basics, then you can right. kind of do your own thing. But there'll be a dumpling on it, like mm-hmm. a, there'll be a braised uh, beef dumpling with some Harlem curry. There'll be a grain burger um, on, a, on a steam bun. Uh, there'll be two salads, and then there'll be roti with a carrot, spicy carrot dip. You're ready to go. I'm ready. You're just like, give me a space. I'm rock and roll. <laughs> You're like, I'm more than ready. All right, JJ, before we let you go, uh, we're doing lightning round. Ooh. Either or questions. Either or, okay. So you got to answer one. You ready? I'm ready. Taking back to the 90s, Biggie or Tupac? Ooh. You got one. Ooh, you're killing me. Tupac. East Coast guy picking the West Coast guy. All Still right. love it's all, all dream, right. though. Don't worry, guys. <laughs> all right. Egg sandwich, scrambled or fried? Scrambled. How do you like how do you like your egg sandwich? I like mine on whole wheat bread, mm. scrambled, bacon, salt, pepper, ketchup. Ketchup, not hot sauce. No. Okay. All right. All right. Mets or Yankees? Yankees all the way, baby. All right. They got uh, Me and my dad go to at least two games a year, so so what, your, your, your dad, you say your dad was from the Bronx? From the Bronx. Okay. Like, right. die hard. Yes. All right. Dude will knock you over in the stadium. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this gets at both sides of your upbringing or family. Mofongo or mac and cheese? Oh, wow. I'm, I'm, I'm a mofongo guy. You ever make it? Yeah. Any 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 trick or anything? It's really none. I like to, I like to, boil, I like to split the plantains in half. Mm-hmm. And then let them, like, not too ripe, right in between. Mm-hmm. Split them in half, let them boil. And then when the plantain kind of, like, starts to slide out the skin, you know it's done, and then start working your dish from there. All right. Thanks for the tip. Jordans or Yeezys? Oh, Jordans, baby. Which ones? Got a favorite? Oh, Jordan number. I always like, I don't know what number they are anymore. I always like the uh, the white and the reds. The original ones? The originals. All right, yeah. Un- unimpeachable. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, I like these questions. Yeah. Miles or Monk? You might be too young to answer that question, but you were up in Harlem for a while. So My son's name is Miles, so oh, I gotta okay. go Miles you all got, day. You got but it, I, okay. I know My- Miles and I, I ran Minton Jazz Club. Yeah. Miles and Monk, both legendary, but I gotta go Miles because of my son. All right. Speaking of which, change the diapers at night or wake up super early when the kids wake up? It, it doesn't matter. That's my shift. <laughs> Which one? The early shift? Both. Both? <laughs> you, got, you need a new agent, man. You got to renegotiate. <laughs> I got to renegotiate. Uh, I'd rather wake up early because um, I know I can get them back to sleep soon. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, short grain or long grain? Short grain. All right. I like it. A couple more. This is from Ryan, my assistant. Collard green salsa verde or peri-peri sauce? Wow. You got one. I, I got to go peri-peri. It's, uh, that was a sauce that, like, first thing I tasted when I was cooking in Ghana. Quickly, how do you make it? 
tomatoes, ginger, onions, garlic, bird's eye chili, tomato, stew it down, a little bit of orange juice, blend. Boom. Sounds good. Cardio or lifting? <laughs> or neither. When was the last time you were in a gym, JJ? I was in the gym yesterday, and they're <laughs> crushing me on cardio right now. So, um, But I think from a chef perspective, I think cardio is key for us. Mm-hmm. All right, last question. Uh, butter or olive oil? Butter, baby, butter all day. <laughs> JJ, thank you very much. Thank you. Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced by Carrie Polis and produced and edited by Emma Wartsman. Our theme music is by Valerie and the Gradies with additional music by Nathaniel Wartsman. We have new episodes every Wednesday, and if you want to tell us about this or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.